0: Hi,
1: I'm Victoria Starek Samoni, co-founder and director of strategy at the Council on Geostrategy, the newest foreign affairs think tank based in the heart of London and dedicated to making uh, the United Kingdom, as well as other free and open nations, more united, stronger and greener. And this is Geostrategy 360, our weekly podcast, which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people and experts. The CCP's current prioritizing of national security and tightening of controls on officials, academia, media, the internet, and society in general are taking the PRC back to the third quarter of the 20th century. The atmosphere of control, fear of punishment, nationalism, COVID-19, and quarrels over its origins have all contributed to making officials and others increasingly distrustful of foreigners and unwilling to talk openly. And one of the most important trends witnessed across the tectonic geopolitical flux of recent years has been China's growing assertiveness and aggressiveness of its foreign policy. At such a time, it has become more crucial than ever for policymakers across the free world to place an increased emphasis on China watching and identifying and assessing key developments in Chinese politics and foreign policy, as well as analyzing their geostrategic implications. This has posed China Watchers worldwide, ranging from scholars to journalists and policymakers' new challenges and the key question, how to understand today's China. And in this context, the Council on Geostrategy is delighted to announce the launch of our newest explainer, China Watching in the New Year, a guide, which is offered by our associate fellow and one of the best experts in the country on China, Charles Parton. The newest explainer offers a concise practical guide how to watch China in this new era. The bulk of this explainer consists of the author's views and experience of China watching spread over four decades, and today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the author himself, Charles Parton. Mr. Parton has been a long-serving career diplomat, spending 22 out of his 37 years' career working in on China, Taiwan and Hong Kong. In his final posting, he was seconded to the European Union's delegation in Beijing as first councillor until late 2016. In 2017, he was chosen as the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee Special Advisor on China and finally, Mr. Parton returned to Beijing for four months as an advisor to a British Embassy to cover the Chinese Communist Party's 19th Congress. So Charles, welcome to this episode of Geostrategy 360. It's a delight to have you with us today.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to be invited. Thank you very much.
1: So Charles, I would like to start with um, the quote, which is the very first um, uh, sentence I came across when I started to read this new guide. Um, and the quote sounds uh, in the following way to understand China today you must understand the Chinese Communist Party may you please elaborate more on why you think this is the key to understanding today's China
0: well this is a quote directly from Xi Jinping himself Uh, and Xi Jinping uh, one of the frequent things that he says is that the Communist Party leads everything Uh, and and it does Uh, it's a Leninist state Uh, so, so party is in every aspect of government setting the policy and increasingly uh, monitoring it and ensuring that it comes out. So if you don't understand the pressures that are moving the party, then I think it's very difficult to understand the direction in which China itself is moving.
1: So, Charles, um could you please tell us more about the inspiration for this explainer? Why you think this China Watching in the New Era, a guide, is an important document to policymakers and tea experts worldwide who are interested in understanding today's China?
0: Yes, I mean, if one looks at the, the recent history of China, um, it, it's been largely until the sort of, I would date it actually 2008, but we'll come back to that. It's been um, a story of gradual opening up from a China that was completely closed, particularly uh, in the Cultural Revolution, um, to one that was increasingly transparent and open. Uh, And therefore, those of us who were foreigners dealing with China, whether it was business or government or whatever, uh, had a far better idea of what we were dealing with and how to deal with it. But since 2008, the Communist Party has really tightened up on uh, society generally, and so that I think that you uh, know the expression totalitarian is, is increasingly a valid one, uh, and that's included a very great clampdown on all sources of information, and because I think quite often because of the the fear or the pressures on the individual officials themselves, um, an unwillingness to to from the, on their part to be open with China, and therefore we've got to find. Other methods to find out what's going in China because China's importance is continuing to rise, uh, for good or for real, um, and if we don't understand it we're not likely to make the sorts of policies that are in our interest in dealing with China, um, and, and that I think was uh, the basis of, of why even five years ago when I sketched out some of the ideas for this paper actually, um, th- 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 that it was dawning on a lot of us, that this is a problem.
1: So, Charles, well, the importance of knowing, understanding, and anticipating the PRC will only increase, as you say, and whether its rise continues or it hits turbulence, we still need to become more PRC literate. Uh, what are the key problems nowadays? Why do you think there's a lack of understanding of, of, of the PRC and of China uh, within Western capitals, within uh, the capitals of the free and open world?
0: Well, if I talk about the government, because it's, it's the government that sets our Chinese policy and, and carries it out, um, you know, government resources put into China actually, I would argue, dipped quite strongly after the handback of Hong Kong, I mean, um, the Foreign Office and, and, and other elements of government, had quite a lot of experience of China, well-trained, both in the language and, and in the culture and the politics. Uh, I think it was felt that there was a a sort of peace to the end, as it were. (laughs) Hong Kong was over. uh, And other things, like the Middle Eastern terrorism, really started to take off and took resources. And there wasn't the long-term recognition. I remember it myself, because I was in government in in those days, in in the late 90s, that actually you needed to preserve that expertise and that China was not only not going to go away, it was going to get bigger and bigger and become more and more important. I don't think it took a genius to see that, but, but resources were, were stretched, and so we've lost out. And if you now look at the government, I can think of only off the top of my head three officials at of the director general level throughout the entire government. It might be four, I'm not sure where one person is, um, who are actually understand China. They're all in the FCDO, and they're all ambassadors abroad, including the ambassador in, in China, whose understanding is very fine. Um, but she's not in Whitehall. There's nobody in Whitehall. Uh, and, and, so, and also, I don't think that you know, over the last decades, the government has invested sufficiently. So it, it, it has trained neither the people. It's not maintained their, their training. In, in the old days, <laughs> you used to get an allowance for maintaining your grant and sitting the exams. That was Sorry, your, your, your language proficiency. Uh, uh, that's gone. And the sorts of performance and incentive structures, promotion structures, also favour and recruitment policies actually favoured the generalist over the specialist. You were more likely to 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 get promoted if you moved frequently between jobs than if you stayed always ploughing the 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 China furrow. And of course, when the civil service recruits, it recruits to a pattern that is matches a template what it considers to be the ideal civil servant, and doesn't give sufficient weight to some of these regional expertises. And then if I was to set one back even further, you might say, well, our whole education system is not producing sufficient people who are China-literate. And that also needs to be looked at."
1: Let's dive straight into your guide. What are the key components um, which composed this guide, and what we should be paying attention to when we start reading this
0: guide? Gosh, well, that's an enormous question. I mean, I I suppose you could say that the um, nostrums that I put forward for dealing with the, one might say, crisis in understanding of China um, divide into two. So the first part is is, is about the sort of new methods of dealing with it and and the importance of open-source intelligence of doing the sort of work that... um, some of our think tanks, both here in the States and Europe have done, where they go into stuff that's on the internet, a whole variety of sources, um, pull all the stuff off and come up with the most amazing pictures, uh, you know, verities about China and, and the work of people, uh, including the BBC, for instance, but, but other scholars, Adrian Zenz, is an example of what they've done in Xinjiang and the picture, the very accurate picture they painted of the concentration camps and the crimes against humanity there, has all been done through this sort of work, because access to officials to talk about Xinjiang, yes, you get the occasional leak of documents, but a lot of it's been done by remote sensing satellites, looking at tenders for, for, for business uh, and other things on the internet. And indeed work, very good work, for instance, on sanctions, China's sanction breaking vis uh, vis North Korea. So I look at that sort of in, in a fairly brief way, but I want to highlight the importance of open source. But then the other point of the paper is to say, look, Uh, we had all these old schools before, in the days when China was relatively closed before it it opened up, Um, and we're going to have to go back to that, because China's getting back to the closed closed systems, so the ability, because the, the Chinese Communist Party still has to tell its own citizens what to do, what it's doing, how to do it, and so if you read the documents, the regulations, the speeches, the explanations, the equivalent of your explainers that the party puts out in its own um, uh, papers and think pieces, um, um, ideological magazines, etc. Uh, you can obtain a pretty accurate view of what's going on as happened, you know, decades ago. It, did. it requires certain skills and those have to be recovered and it requires a very definite diligence um, and of course the incentives to, to get that diligence and those skills.
1: Charles, um what are the key recommendations you outline in your paper?
0: Well it relates very much to to, to those two areas the, the the open source intelligence and 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 reviving those old skills. Um, I mean on open source intelligence I would hope that the government has its own centre and is training people and, and resourcing it. Actually, I don't think they are. Um, and in the meantime, I, I, I strongly recommend that they tap into those think tanks and organisations, which are, because um, this isn't classified work by definition. And not only can you uh, obtain some very clear pictures of what's going on, but because it's not classified, you can actually disseminate it um, much more widely. The, the problem with traditional sort of intelligences is it's highly classified and only very few people see it. Um, this doesn't need to be. so I mean there's a whole series of uh, uh, not a, a vast number of recommendations, but there are recommendations relating to um, you know a temporary expedient when it comes to new new source intelligence and longer term but in in terms of the older older skills which I talked about um, and need to recruit the right people in the right way and need to incentivize them, uh, I think a need to have some central government organization that does this sort of research and analysis. I mean, the Foreign Office has a has a research and analysis department, and I'm not sure how many offices they are up to now on China. At one stage, it was down to two and a half. I think they've reinforced that. But given the size of, of the China question, uh, how it, it, it impinges on so many of our uh, our, our departments, uh, I think we need a, a bit much bigger one. A more centralized one that can can accommodate the interests and needs wow. of all those departments, whether that's you know, um, you know on the trade side or agriculture side, uh, as well as the foreign policy and, and the obvious ones, the military side, etc. Um, so it's to do with that and and the need also because government resources are not infinite, but you can buy in expertise, you can talk to the right people on the right subjects and and, and get them to prepare pieces and papers for you, etc. So it's that sort of theme.
1: Do you feel that these issues are currently being addressed enough?
0: Um, I think that in the last couple of years, um, the whole question of the UK policy towards China uh, you know, has, has come off this golden era uh, rather, um, one might say, blasé and I'm thinking, and, and is looking much more closely at the whole question, And indeed, not just the the legislation and the instruments and the bodies and resources that need to be set up, but the the whole question of how you approach China, the sort of thing that I've talked about in my paper. But I think there's a long, long way to go, Um, and a relatively short time in which that long distance has to be travelled. Well, I'm
1: sure this paper will be very beneficial to all China watchers within the policy-making circles and also experts' community. And I highly recommend everyone to go to our website www.geostrategy.org.uk slash research and download your own copy. The guide is only 13 pages long so it's an extremely useful and concise guide as to how to understand and what China in this new era. But Charles, I'm also absolutely delighted to have you with us here today because we also have so many developments happening around the world especially when it comes to the ongoing tensions tensions between the West and Russia and also to some extent China and I would like to use this opportunity to to talk about certain issues and, and topics with you today. And well, Elliot this morning, um, there was an announcement that President Putin and President Xi will sign a series of deals in Beijing um, tomorrow, right before the start of the uh, Olympic Games, Uh, as well as discuss a new gas pipeline to China that could provide Russia with an economic lifeline in the event of Western sanctions, which we know is a very, very timely topic now, keeping in mind this massive Russian military buildup next to Ukraine's border and also next to the eastern flank of NATO. So China will formally pledge its support for Russia in its dispute with the West over NATO expansion. This is what the Kremlin announced. And what are your views on this announcement? Are we witnessing some sort of formation of the new axis of autocrats, which are not afraid to openly, and as we currently see on the eastern flank of NATO, aggressively um, challenge the free and open world order? Uh, And if yes, well, what risks does does this entail?
0: Yes, well, I mean, I think any diplomat will tell you that uh, when leaders meet, there are some very um, fancy announcements, and and not all of them have, have substance. I mean, if you were to calculate the deals that have been announced between the British government and China in terms of the billions, um, you would find it filth, that the reality falls a lot short. And I'm sure that the reality of, of, of what's going on between China and Russia falls a lot short of, of what these two leaders will be announcing in the next few days. Uh, because it is ultimately, I think, a marriage of convenience rather than um, a, a coincidence of interest. But that said, there are certain interests which do coincide. And so um, for sure, I don't think China, China which, um, only has itself one ally, one formal ally, which is, incidentally, North Korea. Um, doesn't like alliances, and it certainly doesn't like the thought that NATO is increasingly looking towards the Pacific region. Uh, and anything, therefore, that goes to weaken or preoccupy NATO is, frankly, a good thing as far as Xi Jinping is concerned. So, uh, you know, expressions of support on 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 uh, expansion of NATO and uh, what it may or may not be doing in in ukraine uh, i'm i think we'll, we can fully expect that um, but that's a long way short of actually approving of any invasion which would would i think be very much against um, china's interests i mean first of all it's against china's principle that um non involved non-interference in other countries relations that's that's been an absolute stalwart pillar of China's foreign policy but there are also other um you know other, other things that would really get in the way I mean generally uh you know russia in the world is a disruptor, a destructive force China has benefited very much from the way the world has been set up in in the last decades and any form of war like that would be highly disruptive the world economy world governance etc uh, and I can't believe that, that that is in China's interest and then there are specific interests to deal with I mean in 2013 they announced some very big investments particularly on the, the grain side I mean food security, massive uh, preoccupation of the Chinese Communist Party feeding its population and getting that grain from countries which are you know rather more friendly to it or certainly not not Australia for instance or America countries that can interfere with that food security. So, there have been large investments and to some extent stalled ones. I'm sure the investments would be far larger if there wasn't the threat of war. And then, you know, in the back of my mind is the question of iron ore. The one thing that China would love to be free of is reliance on Australian iron ore. Ukraine still has quite large iron ore reserves, um, but you're not going to go in and invest large amounts of money in extracting that if there's a war imminent. Uh, and the same applies to sort of infrastructure projects, ports, railways, etc., which uh, Chinese companies, I'm sure, would love to to get involved with uh, in Ukraine on a greater scale. Um, if the threat of war hangs over those. Are you going to do it? So, you know, and there are other things where one could say immediately that Russia and China are are not on the same page. You know, worries about what's happening in Siberia and Russian Far East is China, you know, moving in there that's a, a, a real worry, and you know, the China's increasing power and domination in Central Asia, which has traditionally been a Russian backyard. So many things I think that, that, that are also um, you know causes for worry, but there are other causes where they are united, trade, industry, um, internet governance, um, some, of, some of global values, I think the question of gas is a lot more complicated, perhaps, than sometimes the papers put out, because uh, China's got, in a sense, a very good deal, uh, Russia, a very bad deal. It's certainly not a level of playing field. And as far as I understand it, Russia doesn't make ma- much, if any, money out of its sale of gas to China. So, reports of what's going to happen, um, you know, in terms of new pipelines etc well we'll see very long term and i would suspect not on the terms that have been agreed in the past
1: how significant do you think this meeting is keeping in mind the current geopolitical context and the unfolding events in europe
0: well i mean you know it advances those things where which i've talked about uh, where where good relations are all relations, there is a coincidence of, of interest. I and mean, the one or two other things that I, I miss out, are a certain amount of military equipment, for instance, and, and the joint operations so that China can learn how to conduct these sorts of operations. It has some good equipment, but it doesn't actually know how to use it very well and, and do combine, combined operations between naval, land, and, and, and air. So there's there's lots of things. And in meetings between leaders give the official you know, paper blessing on, on these um, endeavours, uh, so it's very important symbolically uh, you know, that they'll make as much as they can in, in, in the propaganda sphere about this. Um, so, you know, one, one, one shouldn't exaggerate it, but nor should one minimise the importance
1: we are also waiting for the start of the Beijing Olympics which start tomorrow right um on the 4th of February and well we also know that the um, China hosted the Olympic Games back in 2008 and a lot has changed since 2008 as you rightly referred uh to to this um a couple of minutes ago in our conversation so I wanted to, to to ask you could you please remind us how the situation looked like back in 2008 when China was was uh, waiting for the opening of the Olympic Games, and how did it present its own role in hosting these games, and the role in the international community, and how is situation different now in twenty twenty two? Well, I think
0: I think actually two hundred eight is a really good year to start because people talk about the Xi era uh, and suggest that all the tightening and the changes uh, and some of the nastiness like Xinjiang or, or measures against Hong Kong all you know, are down to Xi Jinping, but actually, if you look at this uh, in, in depth, it all started much earlier than that. I mean, the party prior to Xi Jinping even being chosen as, as the general secretary um, realized that things were, in a sense, going to have it in a handcart. Corruption was getting out of out of uh, out of hand, and uh, the growth of entrepreneurs and the freedoms were eventually going to lead to the demise of the party, and so they started pulling things. Together, at the same time, of course, China had been rising, getting far more um, uh, prosperous uh, and militarily strong, and strong in many other ways. And the games were a way of celebrating that, firstly, to their own people, and saying, "Look, you know, China not just not just stood up, and not just become rich, but it's becoming strong." And that's this has been the big cry, of course, of the Xi Jinping era. My era is making it strong, but it started, you know, that. Sort of build up to that started, I think, um, some years before. Um, so it domestically made a, it made a very good propaganda, but it also said to the world. Um, and, and let's not just look at that through through our Western, by which I mean European, American, Japanese, Australian eyes, but through the eyes of Africa or, or Latin America or other countries in Asia and the Middle East. It made a very strong statement to them, um, uh, which has been you know quite useful geopolitically in many ways to, to China. So I think it's worth dating it from then. Now of course we we, we are, whatever we are, 14 years later, is it?
1: Yes. That's
0: <laughs> um, not, not being my subject. Um, and the situation is, is very much changed, not only is China stronger, but the attitude of the liberal democracies towards <coughs> China has undergone a very great change. Um, this and, and also it's taking place in, in, in a COVID atmosphere, which we could talk about the whole COVID problem and how that might um, develop over the next year or two. Um, so it's you know Xi Jinping, yes, as ever, there's the domestic propaganda comes first. This is a celebration of the strength of his regime and 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 uh, uh, of where China is. Uh, it is intended or was intended to be a. a, a an outward statement too but i think that has been very much undermined by covid
1: so she was quoted as saying that Beijing 2022 will not only enhance our confidence in realizing the great rejuvenation of the chinese nation but it will also show a good image of our country and demonstrate our nation's commitment to building a community with a shared future for mankind so how are these statements perceived within within china
0: I think those sorts of statements, statements, and generally the propaganda goes down pretty well. People do think China is is strong, is doing well, is doing better than than, than the West. Uh, when Xi Jinping says the East is rising and the West is declining, uh, I think that strikes a chord with people. Uh, when you turn to the outside world, uh, it, it does the opposite. But as one always says, the most important thing to Xi Jinping is staying in power, and that means keeping the people of China on side. Foreigners are secondary.
1: Um, well, Xi, of course, and his government has, have been trying to brush off as much as possible any criticism from human rights activists, um, key policymakers around the world, um, including by President Biden, who, who was uh, portrayed as someone trying to keep China down um, by, by Xi and his government um how vulnerable is the regime to this sort of criticism and how much does the domestic audience listen to this outside criticism? Does it reach the audience at all uh, and and if, if yes to what extent if not why and well of course the
0: the, you know, the Communist Party has very extensive um, filtering powers should we say censoring censoring powers so um the the, the wind, that's blowing across the, the Pacific or across from Europe um, does not blow nearly as strongly in, in China as it does in our own own countries for a start. Uh, secondly, as I said earlier, I think that most Chinese are very proud of where China is now. They recognise the problems in, in China, but but they're also very very um you know appreciative of, of 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 the strength of China. So um, it doesn't necessarily sink, sink in. Uh, in, in, in the way that um, you know, some, some people might presume, but um, you know, how important is it to see? Of course, it's important, but there are many other ways that, or many other aspects that are far more important to see. Because if you start from the premise as I do that the most important thing to the Communist Party is to stay in power, because the consequences of losing it are very, very serious individually and in personally, as much as anything else, then. You have to, and because everything is laid at the door of the Communist Party, good or bad, you have to uh, ensure that there is stability, no protest, that your power is legitimized. And it does that through, in, in as I explained in the paper, um, six ways primarily economic prosperity, but also uh, territorial integrity. We're returning China to its, its rightful borders. So Taiwan has to come back, we've got Hong Kong back, Xinjiang, you name it. But but also making China great again at the centre of the world. As it should be respect for China's culture. You know, only the Communist Party has the right form of governance. Look at the mess sort of or Brexit or or Trump or, or or the way they can't deal with COVID or whatever. Uh, but we we have the best form of governance. And then finally, you know, only the Chinese Communist Party can solve the really two two of the biggest problems: pollution and inequality. Now you can pick holes in all those very easily. But but um if you're Chinese, you probably don't and won't.
1: Certain countries have announced diplomatic boycotts. So um the countries of course will include uh ourselves, the UK, the United States of America, Australia, New Zealand, a couple of others. How important is this step and how has the uh, she, she's regime reacted to it?
0: Well, I think it's uh, personally, I think it's very important. I've always been supportive of the athletes taking part. Uh, I studied classics, and, and the great thing about the Olympic Games is it didn't matter how much the Athenians, the, the Peloponnesians, and, uh, and, and the Spartans and the Corinthians were beating the hell out of each other. Um, every four years they downed weapons and, 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 and competed, and then a week after started killing each other again. Um, I think athletes should, should be allowed to compete. Um, but I don't think that um, governments should be attending, and I'm in a sense disappointed that the list is actually quite small. Uh, I think uh, businesses have some very dirty consciences when it comes to the sorts of sponsorships that they've given, and I sincerely hope that television companies etc. concentrate purely on the events and do not in any way magnify or transmit the propaganda that is going to be um, broad- broadcasted. There's a second part of your question. Forgive me. I uh,
1: no. Um yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Charles, thank you so much for this fascinating and timely conversation. And once again, to our listeners, you can download a copy of the newest publication by Charles Parton called China Watching in the New Era, a guide. An explainer can be found on our website www.geostrategy.org.uk slash research. And this is Geostrategy 360, the Council on Geostrategy podcast, which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people, and experts. You can listen to Geostrategy 360 on all major podcast platforms, and you can find all our podcasts on our website, www.geostrategy.org.uk slash podcasts. We will cut out all the noises. Don't worry; it's not right. that the that, 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 that big of a problem, um, because the software allows us to do so. But ideally, we will need to find, I think, another uh, place to record these. <laughs> right. Let um, me just text Richard um, yeah. that we are done here. Thank you so much, Charlie. No. That was. Great okay, so let me today. just check think- the time
0: because I'm not wearing a watch today.
1: That was more or less 30 minutes and I think we, we spent maybe fifteen to 17, 17 focusing on your um, explainer and then also all these timely yeah. issues. So
0: and thank you for allowing me just a few minutes
1: to read No, 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 no not know. at all. Anytime this is your home. Thank a bit you. noisy, but
0: that's <laughs> yeah, good. It's good. And um, yeah. I in there.
1: Uh, let me also see what's happening. Would you I can give him a ring actually. I know that he had a meeting at 11.30, but it was supposed to be for 30 minutes, so we can check. We're done. Thank you. We just need to take a picture so that we could upload it on social media, if you don't mind, Charles.
0: Not so, not so, no.